And now before we have our conversation here about what happened yesterday in the trial of Lieutenant Brian Rice in the death of Freddie Gray, we just want to send our condolences out to Tom Mars' family, our colleague from WCBM Radio, uh, who passed away after having a stroke post-operation. Uh, and uh, we just want to send our condolences. He's been around a long time. Uh, and I've been on the air with him before. And um, it's always sad to see somebody go. We're here in the studio with Baynard Woods, who is reporter for The Guardian, editor-at-large at the City Paper, and Doug Colbert, professor of law at the University of Maryland at Cary School of Law, who spent the day Thursday in the courtroom uh, with um, looking at the trial of Lieutenant Rice. And good to have you both in the studio here. So, Baynard, give us the sense of what happened in this, the day there. Yeah, so, I mean, today was, was opening remarks by, by both sides, but it started with a big... Uh, I mean, the big news from the beginning of the day was the state Nelprost uh, declined to go forward with one of the charges against Rice. And this was the misconduct in office charge that came from the actual arrest. Um, and since he wasn't, I think they learned from the Nero trial, um, the, the, the judge wasn't going to have it that Rice was involved in the actual arrest because by the time he got back from looking, from, uh, looking for the second uh, suspect that uh, Gray was already in custody. So despite the fact that he was in charge, that he helped pull him out and shackle him and everything like that, they weren't going to charge him with misconduct because of the initial arrest. And instead, in opening remarks, did, I think, try to focus on that it was Rice who made the initial eye contact as the police claimed with Gray. Um, but the prosecution said there was no eye contact um, between Mr. Gray and Lieutenant Rice. So they're trying to knock a hole in the Wardlow argument that gave them the right to chase Gray in the first place, that being in a high crime area and seeing, um, seeing a police officer, he took flight. So they, they did that. And then, but they made some really strong claims based on him being the highest ranking officer involved in the case. So, uh, Shatso said, Michael Shatso, the, the, uh, head prosecutor in the case, because of the decisions of Lieutenant, that Lieutenant Rice made, Mr. Gray is it dead. He was in charge. They, they really were pushing on that chain of command idea and that at every stop where uh, that Lieutenant Rice was present, he was the ranking officer and he had the authority to order the other officers to do things. So I think they're learning from the previous cases where Porter said, I couldn't order anyone to take him to the hospital. Um, and, and people said, oh, they were inexperienced. Nero's inexperienced, didn't have a lot of experience. Um, so they're trying to do that, even though they had those 4,000 pages worth of documents relating to Rice's training that in the motions hearings on Monday that the judge won't let either side use. So to show that Rice has been trained and knows all of this may be a tricky thing for them. So, and why is it not allowed in? Why did the judge not allow it in? Well, there was a discovery violation that the prosecution made. Um, yeah, it's it's unusual. It's not unusual to have discovery disputes and disagreements. What is unusual is when the judge actually sanctions the prosecution, and in this case, said that even though you, the police took a long time in giving you the documents that you had asked for for months. You should have come to me if there was delay in the case. And the fact that you didn't and the documents came last week, even though you turned it right over to the defense the next day, that's not good enough. So what's the remedy? Well, we're not going to let either side refer to the training of uh, the lieutenant uh, a afterwards. Which but has to hurt the state's case. 
It it may, Mark, but I, I didn't get the impression from listening to the prosecution that they were troubled by the ruling. They likely have other people who will be able to talk about Lieutenant Rice being on the force for 18 years and in his position of uh, command responsibility. Um, certainly the prosecution should be able to argue that the lieutenant knew the duty that was owed to a prisoner, uh, the, the the duty to safeguard, to protect Freddie Gray. But what I was struck with today was how aggressive the defense opening argument was. Uh, they they really came out and focused on, on Freddie Gray and they, they drew a picture of him as belligerent and combative and and aggressive and kicking and and it, it's so far from the picture that we see on the video where he's seems quite helpless and injured and how does one call that belligerent and combative um, but uh, what they did was they 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 really suggest that there's going to be a lot of police witnesses in this case, and the police witnesses are going to be focusing on Freddie Gray, on the fact that he wasn't compliant, he wasn't doing everything uh, that a uh, a passive prisoner should do, um, and I suppose the form of resistance that they're going to describe, the passive resistance, is what they're saying was belligerent. Yeah, and to add to that a little bit, they. Um I mean, they really did maximize that, that they were saying that Gray was being belligerent for the crowd. And they talked about his crowd um, at one point. And then uh, so at the second stop, so the van's first stop, there's the crowd. They said they went to the second place to get away from the crowd where they took him out and put the shackles on. But then they said his crowd started to grow again as he was screaming, hollering, making a scene, being belligerent. And the crowd was responding so then when they tried to describe him as calm at the fourth stop with Porter, they said his crowd was no longer there. So he was calm but not injured there. And so they were making the case that he wasn't injured at that point. And at the same time, they were minimizing Rice's role to such an extent that they said um, what this comes down to was a nine-second assessment to uh, whether to put Mr. Gray in a seatbelt, con- not to put Mr. Gray in a seatbelt constitutes a criminal negligence or a corrupt dereliction of duty. So they wanted to limit Rice's role to nine seconds in their opening remarks, which hmm. was, was pretty remarkable. And that's where, of course, I'm sitting with and, and listening, and I'm saying nine seconds is what the defense wants to argue should not lead to a conviction for Lieutenant Rice. And I'm thinking only nine seconds to protect and safeguard Freddie Gray, is that all that he's getting out of all this from the supervisory officer who's supposed to be protecting him? Well, I mean, but it's just most people in this community at this moment feel that, that A, that who or take the police aside, police side don't think that he's going to be convicted. And most people, I think, who are in the community who are very upset about the death of Freddie Gray and want to see the police brought to justice, also don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I think that's really the major subtext here, that this is, there's no, there's no, and especially coming on the heels of the, of the killing of Anton Alton, Alton Sterling and, and Philando Castile. I mean, I think people are just wondering where the justice is. Well, and and people have every reason to believe and to question whether our justice system is able 
to do justice when the crime victim is an African-American person, a person of color, a poor person, um, and when the defendant is a police officer. And I say that because there have been so few convictions. Um, really, in, in the history of, I can go as far back as you want, but there's just been very, very few convictions of, or, or even of charges brought against officers. If you want to take the the cup is half full side. If you want to look at how justice may stem from this particular series of trials, it's that we are now learning. The entire community is learning about policing um, in in uh, in areas of Baltimore, predominantly black Latino areas uh, across the country, and. When we look at that and we have to be able to say that the same type of justice, the same type of policing has to be taking place in Freddie Gray's neighborhood as it is in in uh, upscale neighborhoods of our city. That is that the police have to treat people with courtesy and they don't have to go chasing after someone without having any reason to do it. That's the most stunning part of this whole situation, Mark. Freddie Gray was not committing any crime. He was not doing anything wrong. You know, he was taken and apprehended and then put inside of a van. And you just have to ask, if that was happening to anyone else, wouldn't they be calling out for some help? Wouldn't they be saying, hey, don't don't let this happen to me. Like, keep keep an eye on this. Make sure I'm going to be okay. And and so you have to wonder. But nobody, but except I don't think anybody expects that to happen. No, nobody who lives in Baltimore expects the police to do that. Expects to care about anybody that's in their custody. But actually, whether the white, black, Latino, whoever. I mean, I think that that's not the behavior that people expect out of the police. I mean, we, we just don't. And it's certainly not coming from all of the police. But if any of any of us who have been in protests, who have been in any type of actions in which we're questioning state power or government policy or government action, we have seen enough evidence of some police officers who do act unlawfully and violently. And so we have to be able to replace Freddie Gray with someone whom we love in the back of that van. We have to be able to say, if that's my son or daughter in the back of that van, I want that person. Okay. Well, we've said all this before, though. I mean, all that's true. But the reality is, that's not what happens. And, you know, that isn't what happens. And, yeah, and I, mean, I think two things are, are happening with what you just mentioned about the cases. The, the other two videoed, at least in one case, actual videoed execution, as it looked like, um, of an African-American man by police. And we see that we had, I mean, the video of Gray being pulled to the van and stuff was the thing that, that sparked the initial outrage. And we see that it's playing such a minimal role in the trial. As we, I, I talked to Kevin Moore recently, who, who has no idea why, who took the video, has no idea why he's never been called as a witness, hasn't spoken, this, no one in the state's attorney's office has spoken to him in months. Um, but there, there's a real sense that, I mean, it was it was a really difficult just on a personal level also to, I think, for everyone in there today to look at the the pictures of, of Gray's spine again, to hear all of this testimony while having waken up and seen on, in the news this morning what, what we saw was happening in, in 
uh, Minnesota last night. And, and, yeah, so I think there is a different – there's a slightly different sense to this trial now because of that, uh, another larger national sense. But I also think that, that what Doug was saying was right, that there's also a sense a lot of people last week were expecting that Mosby wasn't going to go forward with the case. And there is something – and the prosecution has gotten some black eyes in recent weeks for – a variety of things for for the discovery violations, for losing the cases. Um, but I think there is something now that that's sort of striking a little bit heroic about them, again, for trudging on and trying. We're going to continue to try to get a conviction. And, yeah, maybe the system is entirely rigged against people like Freddie Gray and for people like uh, Lieutenant Rice. But nevertheless, we're going to keep fighting for that. There was a little bit of a sense of that, which... Uh, you know, I don't think there had been in the courtroom since Porter, maybe, back in December. You know, I think that that – I mean, the, the, all these contradictions and all this, and I think that, you know, you, you – um, I mean, if this was a jury trial, I think it would be very different because – especially given the tenor of the moment and what we just saw happen in the last two days on the, on the, as this trial is beginning. I think that, you know, we think that jurors are – like everybody else is totally objective and that's clearly not true. Nobody's totally objective about anything. And you see these kind of things come down. It affects how you feel about what's around you because people are in a lot of pain and a lot of rage right now, I think, over what they've seen in these two videos, which to me at this point are too hard for me to even watch again. I mean, people watch these things as if you actually were there witnessing these murders take place. And it's really hard to watch. It was hard for us yesterday to even do this program to talk about it. But I think that you know, I think that, that, that when, when it comes to this, this moment, I mean, there's, there's – you, you raised the question of Kevin Moore waiting, wondering why he wasn't called. And I think we've talked about this in the air before, Doug, in, um, you know, with all kinds of conversations with people on different sides of this issue, that people are also all, all kind of wondering why nobody was ever questioned who was there at the moment Freddie Gray was arrested, why nobody went out to kind of find these people, to bring them in, to question them, to interview them. Is this part of the case? never was. And so I think that, that, that while people are, I think – grateful and 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 feel good about the fact that these charges were brought because somebody felt like they were somebody was fighting for the name of in the name of the community i think people also have a lot of questions about how the case has been fought um just and that's one instance you just mentioned that again i think that keep com- keeps coming up every time we have a show that comes up over and over again and it has to come up mark i mean there are many things that we need to change about our justice system. Uh, I'm there on a regular basis. I used to be there every single day. And the amount of wrongs, the amount of injustice that one sees in a given day is enough to make you crazy at the end of the day. You figure out, what am I doing? Why should I come back the next day? But you must come back the next day. You must continue to wage that battle. You must continue to say that people's freedom should not depend on how much money they have, that people should not be spending half the people in central booking are there because they didn't come to court or, so they have a warrant. So the we're, we're, 1,500 people are in jail because they can't pay bail. I, in other words, I, I, I don't want to sound as though uh, the legitimate criticisms are not there. They are, but in having choices... I like to look at the openings that we now have that we didn't have and maybe out of respect for the people who have lost their lives, we almost have to recommit ourselves to the struggle for equal justice. So, I mean, so, you know, you've covered, I think, 
Vayner, you were in the you were there out in the streets all the time during the protests, during the rebellion, um, the uprising that took place around Freddie Gray. You're watching the trials take place. So for you, what is that? What is that juxtaposition? What is that connection between what's happening and what people are feeling in the community, given what's happening now and what you're seeing in this trial? For many people, there's a disconnect. I mean, I, and I think the disconnect isn't just a cognitive disconnect that people are having, but it's a, a real disconnect in in the world that that you did that the the system as it is is so separate from what most people in in West Baltimore or East Baltimore or or South Baltimore anywhere sort of outside of the wide L are experiencing on a, a daily basis that. Um, that there is a disconnect there. And, yeah, if you're normally – if you're in court, you're in there as a defendant and you don't feel like you have a very good shot and you feel like everything's stacked against you and you feel like nothing is going to work out in your favor. And so I think that, um, you know, people keep saying, well, we need to trust the system and, and we want to justice. And, and I don't know that people want to – I don't know that people have the experience to trust the system. You know, in order to trust something or to understand something, you have to have some kind of schema to place it within. And and most people in the city, I think, have had no no actual experience to tell them that the system can possibly work for them. And so I think it really is hard for – and I think this is in many ways reinforcing that, that you see that – and I'm not saying that the state's attorney isn't trying to get a conviction – but you see how hard it is for them to get a conviction when, in most cases, they are the ones who are working with the police department um, together against you, against the, the average person there. And so when you have them going, you know, the police department working against the state's attorney's office, which they, they seem to be, um, I think it, it becomes really hard for people to see how this could possibly work for them. And you see, so, Mark, when, when Bayer makes a very good point. When we're watching this trial, every almost every witness that testifies is from the police department and the pro, their prosecution's witnesses. But it's not a smooth presentation. I mean, the amount of interruptions, of bench conferences, of 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 different rulings taking place that doesn't happen when the prosecution has the cooperation of the police. So we are seeing police witnesses who are not being particularly helpful to the prosecution, at least not all the time. They're as helpful to the defense often. And it just points out again how difficult it is to bring these kinds of cases and how much more work needs to be done to make sure that there there is justice when uh, someone dies in police custody. Yeah, I mean, so that that all came out at the end of, to sort of recap a little bit, at the end of the Goodson trial, that came out when they let Detective Taylor come in to to have hearsay testimony about the medical examiner and whether she was ruling that that originally thinking that maybe it was an accident um, rather than homicide. And and that came up again today. uh, Dr. Allen was one of the witnesses today. but, I mean, that, that whole allegation that the state's attorney's office made that Detective Taylor was sabotaging the case, Detective Taylor saying the state's attorney was not accepting the evidence. You saw how in this case the, the two bodies that normally work together are, are so at odds. And, I mean, today, again, in Dr. Allen's testimony, 
She testified that... Who's the medical examiner. Yeah, the medical examiner who wrote the autopsy. She testified that police officers were in there while she was doing the autopsy for a majority of the time. Almost all of the time. And I I know you've had uh, Dwight Pettit on talking about this in in the past, about the way that medical examiners work closely with the police department, too closely for... And so I know one question people have is, why didn't, like the defense teams we do, why didn't the state's attorney's office... If they were worried about the police department in this way, why didn't they bring in an independent medical examiner um, that that would have been more independent from the police department? When you have a trial that's um, only left because I just this, the, the, we seem to have these programs all the time about these trials. We can go around and around around the same issues often. Um, but so when you're in court arguing a case that's a bench trial before a judge on a jury. How different is that than arguing before a jury in terms of what lawyers, prosecutors, and defendants can expect and the nature of how you fight a case? Well, first of all, Mark, if I'm representing the average person, we never ask for a bench trial. Um, It would be the rarest of events. The judge would have to give a wink and a nod and say, you can trust me. And the prosecutor would have to say, go ahead, judge. We really don't want to prosecute this guy, but we can't dismiss it. We always rely on people, people from the community, jurors. That's the heart. That's the, the, the part of the system that can only give the most faith. So when I'm doing it in front of a judge, it's because I've got a special uh, client, uh, somebody in the defendant seat who normally we don't see in the defendant seat, like a police officer. And so if I'm doing this particular case, I'm going to be as aggressive as I possibly can to try to get points across, knowing that the judge is not going to agree with those points in the end, but wanting to make the very best attempt and record to try to explain why the evidence does suggest that we have proved our case beyond a reasonable doubt. You're going to have to, and then you're going to have to take certain clues from the judge. Like Judge Williams has told the prosecution what he's looking for. He's looking for more evidence in different areas. He doesn't want the same old witnesses going up there. He wants somebody from the police department to say, this is what police must do in these type of situations. And we haven't had that witness yet. Nor does it appear that it's forthcoming. In fact, I mean, today, I think. If I'm counting and thinking of other witnesses, right, I think every witness that testified today for the state has previously testified in the other trials in virtually the same manner to virtually all of the same things, except for uh, Captain Bartness, who's the chief of staff of the commissioner, and wrote the general orders and stuff. And one thing that came out that was beneficial towards the, the defendant rather than to the prosecution, which, which hits on Doug's point of, of this often happening with these cases, is the, the judge directly questioned, do you mean when you say that a commander is responsible for disseminating any change in, dissem- in general orders to the, the troops, to the lower-level officers, do you mean someone who's a captain or higher? Or do you mean a shift commander who's a lieutenant? And he couldn't say. He couldn't answer that. And so, again, it's the general orders are unclear. It's a department that doesn't have a very clear path forward or a clear structure of guidelines. And that makes each of these individuals less culpable, I think. And so the, the, 
they end up helping the defense as much as or more than the prosecution. I mean, you do get that sense when you talk to regular street officers, people on the on the patrol, that, that that is how it works. They don't really are not really told. There might be some things out there, but they're not. Like the rough ride thing was something that may have been out there, but most police don't feel they have to abide by it. It's not something they're told to do every day, and it's not even part of the purview. I mean, I think that's part of the problem. I mean, that, that the nature of policing is part of the problem here and how we do it. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I think that, that and that's what's coming through more and more in this trial to me. I mean, the comments we have left, I mean, one of the things that comes out, I think, is at the end here is having this push and conversation about um, what it means to reform public safety in Baltimore. And, and that, that's where this is going. And what I'm hoping, Mark, and of course it's, it's a big hope, but the hope is that the people who are in the system, the stakeholders, I'm talking here not just about the police, and, um, but I'm talking about the judges, I'm talking about the lawyers. We all know and they know what's wrong with the system. They know the places that the, it's not working at all as getting close to the justice that we'd like it to be. So we have to have people from within the system speaking up. We can't just circle the wagons. We can't have every judge saying, well, we're not going to take a new look at, at uh, uh, bail and who's in jail and what's taking place in our justice system. We have to be somehow working together to find justice for the poor, for the working person as much as we find it for the person uh, with financial resources and with uh, the the private lawyers, like the police officers, have a, a really very effective group of lawyers. So how long do you think this has been done? Just back very quick before we have to roll here. How long is this trial going to go on until mid-late next week? Do we know? Do you have a feeling? It's probably about the same as the others, and I would expect by the end of next week. And if, if passes any indication, probably closing arguments or verdict will be on a Monday. Um, and uh, that's where we'll be. Well, this I do appreciate you all coming by and taking the time here after a long, busy day to kind of go over what happened in the court on Thursday. You just heard Doug Colbert, professor of law at the University of Maryland School of Law, and Baynard Woods, reporter of The Guardian, also editor-at-large of the City Paper. Thank you both so much. Yeah, thank you. We have to take a short break, but stay with us. We're going to come right back. And on our way there, I want to remind you that a program like this is only made possible on The Mark Steiner Show by groups like MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. 